My name is Barbara Erke. I'm the Vice President of Academic Affairs for the School of Nursing at Indiana Wesleyan University, which kind of means I'm the Dean of the School of Nursing. So that's kind of what it says. And I have some fans of mine right up here in front that have been students at Indiana Wesleyan or graduates. So it is really my pleasure to be here with you today. I'm very excited to be here to be sharing with you about cross-cultural nursing assessment. And I always like to know who I'm speaking with. So how many of you are students at this moment in either a ba- associate, bachelor's, uh, master's, doctoral program of some kind in nursing? Okay, a lot of you are. Good. Okay, how many of you have already gone somewhere globally or locally in another culture? Okay. And how many of you have been uncomfortable doing that? Okay. That is really um, a part of my goal. Um, I were, when I worked more with the students for their transcultural nursing, I would tell them that they needed to be uncomfortable or they truly weren't in another culture. If they said, I want to go here, and, and they're say, I'm saying, well, I don't think you'll be uncomfortable enough because you live there, you know the people there, and especially for MKs, they'll say, I want to go back to where I... And I'll say, no, you won't be uncomfortable. I need you to be uncomfortable. And they were never really happy with that explanation, but, you know, they lived with it. So, okay, let me open in prayer, and then we will go. Father, we thank you for today and for this opportunity to share um, cross-cultural information and to share what you are doing around the world I pray that the words would be clear, the questions would be answered, and that you would be glorified. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so you saw the outcomes. We have three different outcomes for this program. I want to know what you really want to learn from this. So who's going to, what do you really want to know? And I didn't bring my pen or anything here, but what, what would you really like to know about, I didn't bring paper with me, so what would you really like to know? And then somebody's going to keep me on track so that I can answer those questions for sure. Hmm? What, what are you, you know, you're here. What, yes? Okay. Okay. So, saying yes, I worked in uh, Mexico for ten years, and I know what Mexicans are like, and therefore I don't have to look at them as an individual. Okay. Very good. Yes. Oh no. Anybody else? Yes. So how do you know if you're going to, there are three words, if you're going to preserve, accommodate, or repattern are the three words that we're going to look at. Preserve a culture, accommodate a culture, or repattern it. And are we going to maintain, negotiate, or restructure? So I'm going to cover that actually. So we'll get to that one. Okay. So um, one of the outcomes was to describe three techniques used for during a cross-cultural assessment. Let me just tell you a little bit about my background. I grew up in northern Minnesota um, where pretty much most people were 
um, Euro-Americans, the Scandinavian culture. Um, but I came from a German background. I was one of the few Germans in the area. But really no cultural variation, except right next to my farm was part of the White Earth, was the White Earth Indian Reservation. And so there was a cultural variation where I was living, but they went to a different school, and I really had no cultural information at all. Didn't know missionaries, didn't have any cultural differences that I had ever heard of until I went, became a Christian when I was 17 and went to a Bible camp and there was a man there from Haiti, uh, a missionary, and he said, oh, you should become a missionary. You should come to Haiti, really. I said, well, I'm going to go to nursing school. He goes, oh, but after that. So immediately after um, my program, I went to Haiti for the summer. And it talked about culture shock. The very first thing, I'm sitting in the front of a vehicle with about nine people, I'm right center front because I'm the really only English-speaking person, and I had never been out of the country, and except for just a little bit into Canada to pick blueberries. But that, that, that obviously that doesn't count now, does it? When you're in Haiti, so I'm thinking we're going to hit every human being on the road, every animal on the road, and it was just pure trauma. Fortunately, when I it was about a seven-hour drive to where I was going in this vehicle. And I was then arrived, and I knew I had to stay there seven weeks, and there was no way to get out. You know, it wasn't like I'm going to leave home early and um, go go home early. No, there wasn't an option. And so God had to sustain me. I can just remember praying, and I had no idea about culture. I had not studied culture in my nursing program. That was not even talked about. Went to a um, the only culture in nursing school was I was a Protestant and I went to a Catholic nursing school. So I learned a lot about culture and negotiating that religious part, but I really didn't know about, you know, ethnicities and, and racial culture at all. And God had to speak to me and I had to learn. My first job there, I was fired because... I couldn't speak the language, and my job was to do x-rays on TB day. So take a deep breath, hold, don't move, click, and every x-ray turned out really badly. And so they said, you can't do this, you have to go develop x-rays. So then I spent my time developing x-rays. But I learned that everybody was an individual. Everybody had to be looked at as an individual. I couldn't just say, all Haitians drive horribly bad. There were two that didn't, you know, so you really just, you just can't say everybody does it. So you have to look at them as individuals. And that would be number one. You have to look at people individually. Now, globally speaking, not stereotypically, but generalizing, northern Minnesota people are from the Euro-American background. And they live up there because they like cold weather. That's pretty generalization. That's not stereotypical. but that, So you can say some of those things, but I know several people who just don't like the cold at all. They're not Scandinavian, and they're now we have a Russian influx coming in. And I know some who would rather not be there, but because of life circumstances, they're there. So we do have to look at them individually when we're, take, when we're working with them. Um, So how do we do a cross-cultural assessment? Indiana Wesleyan, everybody in the pre-licensure program does a two-credit transcultural nursing um, class and then a one-credit global experience. So we we use the Geiger-Davenheiser model 
for um, for assessment. And so I could ask these students here right in front of me exactly what that meant, um, and we'll see what they remember. But number one factor that you must assess is culture. Communication, their cultural communication pattern. Yes, they speak English, but is it the English that I'm familiar with? If you're in Australia, they use different words. If you're in England, they have different words. You talk about the boot of the car, and you talk about, and it's like that. You have to assess their communication. Communication to me is really key. One has to assess their communication. And not only are they speaking French or are they speaking English or are they speaking Spanish, but what grade level are they speaking it at? If I'm fluent in Spanish and I'm using these words, only medical terminology. You know, we're going to check your vital signs. We're going to do your TPR. Even in English, people stare at you. I'm going to take your, temp- I'm going to take your vital signs. And people go, what part of my body are they going to take for that? People don't know that. But in healthcare. People know vital signs and TPR and everything. And so for those of you who are in healthcare, think about that. And the next time you walk into a room and you say, I'm going to take something from you, and people are going, I don't know if I really want them to take my vital signs, and I don't know where they're going to take them. So our communication pattern is critical for a cultural assessment. I know many of us have worked culturally and have used translators. Translators can be dangerous. You don't know the language. So what do you do when it's dangerous? I was teaching uh, a couple weeks in Russia, and I was using uh, a model and talking about the Betty Newman model and um, talking about the need, talking about some ethical issues and got to euthanasia. And so I said, you know, from my perspective, my faith background, euthanasia is not good. It's not appropriate. And everyone went blank in front of me. So I said to the translator, how did you translate euthanasia? What are they looking at? Well, I had just said, people, youth in Asia are bad. We don't believe in that. We don't like that. Yeah. So I said, okay, let's back it up a bit. And let's really talk about what I mean by euthanasia. So that was just a general term I thought people understood. So when you're working with someone, you really have to look at them in the face. This going into the room now and saying, how are you feeling? You're feeling okay. You're not getting their cultural perspective. You're not getting their visual, their facial expression. And you're going to be using words, and they're going to be like blanking out, not knowing. We won't have a good health history if we can't communicate. So I'm a believer in using translators and, or interpreters or whatever term of those two that you want to use, but you have to really watch facial expressions. What are they hearing? What are they, what are they ex- hearing, but what are they thinking at the same time? So that's critical when you're doing a cross-cultural assessment. I put communication right up there as number one. Um, their space orientation may be very different as well. And what do I mean by space orientation? I don't know how long I can do this. But if I'm talking to my patient and I am getting really close and I am standing here talking, talking like this, I am in her space and she is very uncomfortable because I'm too close to her. So that whole space dynamic, you know when we're the worst as nurses, and I know there's other healthcare professionals probably in here, when we're the worst is when we're invading their space when they're stuck on the bed. 
And they're like trying to scoot as far away as possible. And we're right down there in their space. And we haven't acknowledged that we're coming into your space. And many, many people do not want their space invaded. We need to be aware that as they're scooting over to the edge of the bed as we're trying to do something, that just maybe we need to stop and we need to talk. I'm coming into your space. I'm going to be touching you. I have to touch you to do this, but not hover over. We have to be really sensitive about people's space perception. You've maybe worked with people who have come right up next to you and told you something, and like all you're doing is you're kind of backing away like this. So when you're working with certain cultures, and I'm not going to name many cultures today because I don't want to be stereotypical about but there are some cultures that have a, their spaces like this. And so when they're talking to you, you're backing up. And they're wondering why you're backing up. It's because our space, my space, my Euro-American space that I have is a bit more than this. So that's another, when you're doing a, a cultural assessment of somebody, You need to be looking at their space and how they view space. Another one um, is time. Many of us have worked in cultures. I worked in the Democratic Republic of Congo for several years, and their perception of time and my perception of time were two different things. You must be on time for class. I taught nursing there. And their perception of time was very different than mine. I have to say that some of the Euro-American kids I have taught at Indiana Wesleyan, their perception of time was a bit different than mine as well because um, I always wanted them there on time. And I can remember one. He grew up in um, a Central American country. I'll try not to give too many details. Central American country. And he was late all the time. He says, but that's my culture. You know, I grew up there. I said, no, 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 no. We're here at nursing school. You're going to be on time. You're Euro-American, and you can learn another culture. You're going to learn my culture of being on time, okay? And so we negotiated his time between how he thought he could be Central American time zone, which time frame is different than my Euro-American. And as nurses, you know, we're pretty time conscious. You know, we give the pill at this time, we do this, and we do it. You know, so we're pretty time conscious. And so we kind of had to, okay, guide him in, and now... He's very time conscious, you know, in his practice that he has. And so that's another area that's very, very important. Now, we also talk about environmental control, and that's the hardest one for students to kind of grasp their head around. And we're talking about the Geiger-Davenheiser model, okay? Um, so I, that's, the, that's the model that I use most of the time. Environmental control, what does that mean? Well, there's two different ways. I'm in control of my environment, meaning I have control if I'm going to get sick, I'm going to have control if I'm, um, and how am I going to have control? I'm going to take vaccinations because I know if I'm vaccinated, three years from now, I won't um, be sick. If, you're, if you have the other, the external locus of control, we call it, if you have an external, it's like, why should I be vaccinated? I'm not sick today. I don't think about getting sick. If I get sick, it's going to be God's will. I've heard that many times. So the internal locus of control, a lot of Euro-Americans have that internal locus of control, is I can, I'm not going to get sick. I'm going to be vaccinated. I'm going to eat right. I'm going to exercise. I'm going to do all those things, and I am not going to get sick. And I believe I have control over my health. Many of us, when we are working globally, we are working with a culture that does not believe that. They do not believe they have control over their health. They believe, they believe it's God's will or what will be, will be, and I have no control. 
And we see lack of vaccinations at that time. Um, probably the, the toughest situation I ever ran into with this situation was um, a child coming into the hospital that was severely malnourished. And so I was boiling eggs and taking them down there and almost force feeding the child. And the nurses just said, why are you doing that? And I said, in my, I am in control of my environment um, because if I do this, the child will live. And they said, it doesn't really matter. I mean, the child has malnutrition and probably will die. And it's, you know, it's just God's will. And I can just remember being so upset and saying, it is never God's will that a child dies of malnutrition. Now, whether that's, Biblically correct or not, I, you know, if there's a theologian out there, you can talk to me afterwards. But, I mean, for, to them, it was just like that was part of life. That was, I have no control over this child with malnutrition. And I just remember how being terribly frustrated I was at that moment, that all my efforts, and the child did die from malnutrition. It was just like, that was, and so you see the difference between many Euro-Americans saying, I have control and I can prevent, and many people who saying, we can't. The, the example of Ebola might be a good one here. You know, like, if I'm going to get sick, I'm going to, one of the practices that really promoted the transmission that I have heard, now I have not worked in that area at all, so I really don't know their culture, is that they would kiss the dead person. And that would transmit the Ebola. And I'm, I'm certain, if I went in there and I said, don't do that, that's going to, if I, that's going to cause you to have Ebola. If I'm going to get sick, I'll get sick. You know, there's no way of stopping that transmission. Um, and then, and in some ways, is that right or not about culture? How do we how do we manage that? Besides just kind of a force, you can't do this. We've got to not touch the body. We have to have special people in special spacesuits that look totally out of space in that area. I mean. Having worked in Africa, I cannot imagine, when I heard her, uh, Dr. Debbie speak today, I just can't imagine being in those suits. And I, I fully understand about the water running off of you. I used to stand up and teach, and I could just feel the water rolling down my back and practically down my leg and everything. And it, I, but I can't imagine putting on all of that. And so if the culture there just says, look it, Dr. Kent, he put on all that stuff, and he still got sick. So... All they do doesn't really prevent either. How do we how do we talk that through with the culture? How do we do that? And then just to kind of add the conundrum, and I'm not going to answer this conundrum for you, um, Mr. Duncan, who passed away from Ebola here in the United States, he had four people living in his house with him, in his apartment, in tight quarters, taking care of him, and not one of them got Ebola. How do you explain that? I can't. I've been asked. How do you explain that? I don't know. But those are, when you're working in culture, when you're working cross-culturally, and if you don't understand, if you're not speaking the same language, imagine how difficult it is to try to explain those situations. And those are the times that you really do have to ask God to help you and give you a vision. Um, how many of you have read the book Peace Child? Okay, Peace Trial, old book from Indonesia, Irian Jaya, and they were trying to figure out how to translate, you know, Jesus being the peace child, and they finally figured out the way, and I'm not going to tell you that story, but it took a long time, several years literally, to figure out how to translate what Jesus did for people. 
And it took a special situation. And I would recommend that. For a cultural, ex, ex, cultural information, it's not at all medical or nursing or healthcare or anything. I'd read the book, Peace Child by Don Richardson. It, is, um, it will help you to understand the difficulty of translating words and not knowing the language and the, the, the help that one needs when one um, is working at cross-culturally. So on with the cultural assessment. There is um, cultural assessment. So we've gone over communication some. We've gone over space. We've gone over time. Um, one we haven't gone over is social organization, which is really family and religion and some of those other social networks that people have. How does re- so now I'm going to ask you a question. How does religion impact health care? Different worldviews as to how we're, can somebody give me an example? Different worldviews as to how they're going to deal with something. Can somebody tell me one? Yes? With karma, if you see someone suffering, they did something in a past life, they're suffering now. If you help them, it'll just delay their payback. So okay. So there's in karma, that would be India, right? Yeah. Well, where's? Buddhist. Buddhist, sorry. Okay. The okay, the Jehovah Witness. Yes. And the, the, they're not taking blood. Mm-hmm. So religion impacts. One more? Okay, pacifying all the local gods. I saw your hand. I don't want to ignore you. Okay, the one that we see. What's the the one that we see most in the United States? Potentially is Jewish, kosher Jewish. And uh, the students that do the transcultural nursing experience from Indiana Wesleyan, um, some of them go globally and some of them stay locally. And there is a kosher Jewish nursing home in Indianapolis. And um, I can remember doing my lecture about, you know, kosher and meat kitchen and milk kitchen and milk pots and pans and all of that and never keeping them, you know, together and all. And then we'd have a student who went down there and they came back and they said, you know, they really do do that. Uh, yeah. That's why I taught that. But, I mean, they, they, I don't think people can really fully understand, because I don't even fully understand, how you can possibly keep all your milk dishes and, you know, for us at Christmas time. Can you imagine having all these foods going on? And Well, they would have Hanukkah, not Christmas, okay? But um, all these foods, and, okay, these are milk, and these are, these are milk, and this is a milk, this over here, and this is a meat over here, and, you know, some child comes along and mixes the two. and Yeah, so we, ha- we see that in the United States. Now, in Indiana, there's not a kosher hospital, but I do believe there are the, or at least kosher units in New York and where there's some of the larger kosher Jewish. That's one that's fairly, fairly common that really impacts the health care, especially from the nutritional standpoint of health care. So, I mean, that's how religion can impact um, health care. So from the social organization point of view of family, we know how family can impact health care. Those of us who have worked with family... There are cultures that grandparents make the decisions on what, uh, what's going to happen. You know, we're looking at the mother. Mother, you have to decide. What do you want done? And they're looking over their shoulder. We say, no, no, no. It's your child. You have to decide. And in their culture, it's not them who get to decide what health care their child is going to receive. So we have to kind of put ourselves aside 
and say, okay, how am I going to do it? So then we get them lined up side by side. So you're looking at them both in the eyes, hoping that, you know, the, the grandmother can pick up the vibes from the mom to get the right answer for us. Because it culturally, if the grandmother wants something, I don't know, do we actually believe what the grandmother says if the mom is sitting right there? So we have to be really sensitive from the, from the, family, from the family point of view. Who actually gets to make the decision for the child? Well, not only for the child, for the older adult. I worked long-term care once I came back from um, working globally. And I can remember working long-term care. And here's the person with the power of health care, you know, the power, the health care representative can make the decision. And the sister standing right alongside saying, no, you've got to do this and this and this. And I'm going just, I've got to talk to this one. And over here, I'm just getting being yelled at. So we have it not only with children, but we also have it with the older adult. And who gets to make the decision? Well, there's no paper except the health care representative. Okay, the health care representative. But if there's not one, then you really, there is a really drama that goes on as to who's going to make the decision. And it's not always the one that we, that I, think should be making it. So when we're looking at social organization from the religion standpoint or from the family standpoint, we have to figure out culturally how are we going to navigate that. Now, let's take it from the United States into another culture where we're not maybe speaking the language. We have to figure out culturally who who's the important person who do we actually address? Who do we find out the wisdom from? I spent many hours under, the, it's called the Palaver Roof, or I, or, uh, where I was, and talking and talking, trying to figure out community health and figuring out which is the key person here that actually has the right to make the decision as to what's going to go on in the whole village. And you just kind of have to observe and watch the mannerisms and trying to figure out what's going on. So that you're actually, you know, if somebody jumps in and says, this is the idea, and you say, yeah, I like that idea, and you see the other people kind of fading away, you think, uh, that maybe isn't the person who is the most respected or the person who actually has the ability to make the decision. Now, I like that decision. I like that idea because it was my idea, too. And I thought, oh, well, we agree, so let's, let's go ahead with this well project that we're going to do that I've been involved with on the Bateki Plateau with three of them, and I think, okay, let's do this. And in the reality, it was the, maybe the wrong person. So when you're probably sitting there thinking of some examples where you maybe stepped over a cross-cultural situation, and you say, I wish I could pull, you know, ratchet this back some. And so learning to do... And so when you're doing a cross-cultural assessment, you're not just going to sit there with a piece of paper saying, okay, I'm going to check on how they figure out time and I'm going to check on space. And so, you know, it's, it's an ongoing. It's not a one time and you're done. You don't walk into a room and kind of do this assessment, this cross-cultural health assessment. You just go in there. And you just don't do it once. It's every time you're going into the room. And why am I saying going into the room? Because you that work in the United States... How many of you in the last week, no, let's see, where, since November 1, we'll go back it up, November 1, have you worked with someone from another culture? Yeah. How many of you have worked with a physician from another culture? Or a nurse from another culture? So, okay, I'm not just talking about sick people now. I'm really talking about when you're, when you're working with somebody who has a different view of women, 
and the ability for a woman to make their own independent decision, and you're working with people, you have to negotiate that very carefully. And just because they happen to come here doesn't necessarily mean that they've left what was done wherever they came from. So when I talk with students, I used to say, have you had any cross-cultural? No, no. You never worked with a physician, female or male, from another culture? Well, yeah. Well, right there, there's cultural conflict that goes on. First of all, the language differences, even if they're speaking English and I'm speaking English. But as you know, I have an accent. Um, Many people tell me I have an accent. It's from northern Minnesota. Now, I don't hear my northern Minnesota accent. Um, When I went to Pennsylvania and worked for three years, I'd go home and they said, oh, boy, do you ever have that Pennsylvania accent? Okay, so, I mean, we different people hear accents. So now I'm speaking English. They're speaking English, but we have come at it from a different way. And my words mean something maybe differently than their words. Same words, same meaning. Same words, but different meanings. So when you're working cross-culturally, I bet you you thought we were only going to talk about over there as opposed to right here. But right here is where we are today, unless you're permanently overseas or something. There's a lot of health care that is provided by professionals from another culture. And we have to learn to work with them and negotiate their culture, and they have to negotiate our culture, and we have to figure out how are we going to work together. Then we have the patients. Many of you have worked with patients in the recent in the recent um, month or so. Northern Indiana, one of the largest patient population, happens to be Burmese. Now, why in Indiana? I don't know. If you're in Minnesota, the Hmong, um, H-M-O-N-G, that population is, is very prevalent. I mean, they, a whole group of them came um, as refugees and settled there. Back when I was just finished nursing school and living in western Pennsylvania, um, it was the evacuation of all the Vietnamese. Some of you probably remember that time in the early 70s, middle 70s, later 70s, when they were evacuating, they were just transporting them, they were leaving their country. I had a Vietnamese family live in my house. I had older brother, older sister, younger brother, and mother living in my house with me. And I was working at the hospital. And younger brother got sick with a high fever. And so I took him down to the hospital, and I could understand younger brother's English, although Vietnamese English. I was working with, I can't remember what country the physician was from, and I, because I worked in the ER, I could understand his, I'll just say, um, Pakistani English. Okay, So I was translating this English over here to this English over here. And I'm thinking, I can't believe I'm doing this. I'm, I'm translating English to English, but this English was very different than this English, and I understood both of them because one was living in my house with one I worked with on a regular basis, and he had malaria. Instantly, isolation. I know. We can laugh now. Isolation for malaria. And then everybody go down to the lab. You can see malaria in the blood. And so people would go down to the lab to see malaria in the blood. I mean, that was like... Wow. Where maybe it was because we didn't see that in the area that I was in Pennsylvania. But So even when you're working with either patients or family members here in the United States, now translate that into another country. When you happen to maybe be the true foreigner in the group and you're trying to negotiate culture very closely. It is, it's like walking kind of on eggshells. So... Um, As we move on, 
So we've talked about um, communication, space, social organization, time, the locus of control in either internal or external. Um, and then we could talk some about biological variations. If you're working with a population, um, a particular population, you need to find out what sort of illness, illnesses may be biologically. Well, let's think. We could think of sickle cell. You know, we know that one. Tay-Sachs, we kind of know that one. So when you're working with this particular culture that maybe has um, some sort of disease maybe that um, they would have more cultural, not culturally, but within their bloodstream or within that population, we have to become much more aware of it. So we think that way. Now, everybody coming to the United States these days and they have a fever is automatically, we're thinking, Ebola. Um, one year ago, when everybody came from Africa here and they had a fever, we all thought malaria. And the good person coming from, a, from, the, from there would come home with their own malaria cure and you would just take your own pills and you'd treat yourself because trying to get into a hospital and convince them that you have malaria and that all you need is some chloroquine or something and that you, know, you can tell them exactly what you need, just too much of a hassle. So that was the thing we did. You know, you'd come home and you always brought... Well, when I came home after four years, I always brought some worm medicine with me, and I just self-treated before I left. And a month after I got back, I just self-treated because there was no way I was going to go get my physical, and they tell me I have intestinal worms. No way. So um, you just treat yourself. Now, it's a whole different political, you know, if you have a fever and you've been out of the country, you, everybody thinks be Ebola. I was, went to Haiti um, last month with some doctoral students, and I'm on the plane, and this lady leans over next to me really quietly. Do they have Ebola in Haiti? I leaned back and I said, no, but we do in the United States. <laughs> it did not reassure her. But it is true. We did in the United States. They did not there. But I thought, why are you sitting on the plane even going there if you don't know? That was kind of my thought. Like, why are you even here if you don't know? But, so it was a, uh, just an interesting uh, moment there. Other cultural assessment things that we, you, you, we can talk about, and I want to get back to the question that we had. What if they have, uh, have, have any of you heard of Leininger's sunrise model? Anybody use the Leininger sunrise model? Um, uh, let me spell that for you. Cancel. Um, L-E-I-N-I-N-G-E-R, Leininger. Madeline Leininger, the mother of transcultural nursing. Okay. Um, I like, I like the Geiger and Davenheiser. There are many models of assessing cultural, you know, to do a cultural assessment. I like the Geiger and Davenheiser. It really kind of fits and makes sense and into, into my concept and what I'm doing. But I also pick up a lot of the Leininger Sunrise model because there's one component of it that I really, really like. Um, but some of their factors that they would also add to be, uh, to be, um, to be assessed would be um, something like, their, edu their economic factors. We should be assessing economic factors. I mean, obviously, if we're working in a resource-poor area saying, you need this and go to the pharmacy and get that, more than likely they're not going to. So the moment you arrive or you're working in a country, you need to understand what resources are actually available. Uh, many countries, you have to go, if you have to have surgery, you have to first go buy all your stuff you need and then bring it with you. 
So um, that, you know, we just can't imagine that. But when you're thinking economically, when you're thinking about the economics of the, of the culture that you're in, you have to understand that. So that, that was one thing that um, Leininger added. Now, she also added at the end nursing care decisions. And we can either culture care, preservation, or maintenance. That's the first thing we can do. So the illustration that's sometimes given is there are some cultures that really believe in that um, – I've read this in a book. I've not seen this, okay? That cornmeal, if you spread cornmeal under a bed, it will keep the evil spirits away. Okay. Now, you can't imagine doing that in the United States now, can you? I mean, that just would not, would not be right. So what, how would you adapt that to the United States? What would you do? What could you do? You need the cornmeal under the bed. to help them keep their evil spirits away. And you telling them, I'll pray the evil spirits stay away, just won't <coughs> cut it for them. Now, hmm? Put it in a pan. Put it in a pan. That pink wash basin that everybody gets, good use of it. Put it under the bed with some from the cornmeal in. If that's what they believe, and they're going to be terribly, terribly upset, and which will then impede health care. I mean, if their blood pressure is up and they know the evil spirits are going to get them. So we can preserve that. That's not going to be a damaging problem for them. Okay, So we can just say, okay, you can keep doing it. It's okay. Now, I've not seen that myself, but I've been told by people that have that, you know, that's just part of their culture. And so that's something culturally one could maintain, but the housekeepers would not want you to do this. Okay, So figure out a way not to spread it but figure out a way to kind of contain it. So that would be one. So you can, you can either preserve it or maintain it. So if they have a cultural belief that is culturally for them and you can maintain it or, or preserve it, keep that. There are some things you can only either accommodate or you have to negotiate. Um, the gypsies. Anybody here care for gypsies or ever been around? Okay, somebody has. I've been told that when somebody is in like ICU or who's dying, they really like to have a candle lit so that their spirit will, you know, if they die, their spirit will be guided by that light. Well, they're in ICU with everything going on, and they bring in a candle, and they light it. Good idea? No. So what are we going to do? How do, you, uh, how do we now accommodate? We say no candles. How do we accommodate it? The, the, yeah, the Christmas candle. Put it at the head of the bed. A little battery-operated one that you can click on so there's a light. So now what you're doing is you're not, um, you're not saying you can't do it. You're accommodated that, so you're safe. You're not going to blow up the ICU room. So you've got to be safe. But you can say, okay, we can do something else. We can accommodate that light there. We can't do it the same way. There's not going to be an open flame. And then the third thing in nursing care, what we can do is we can look at either repattern or restructure, which means thou shalt not do this. We just can't accept what they're doing. And in some ways, it happened in China many years ago. Who can think of the illustration in China of a cultural pattern that they had for years and years and years, and it has really been stamped out? Foot binding. Foot binding was very cultural. So if we went in there, for, if we went in there, if I'd go in there and say, you can't, 
that, I mean, I, I can't figure out a way to accommodate it. I can't figure out a way to negotiate it. I can't figure out a way to keep it. So it took years to do that, but that actually has disappeared. That's one of those things that they said was cultural and you can't take it away. But because of the damage and the all that went on, that actually has been restructured or repatterned out. Now, they still have the tiniest feet, feet on the world. You can't, I've been over there. I can't find a pair of shoes that fit me over there. Uh, but um, it's not because of foot binding. Now, there's another one. So let's talk about Ebola. So we've got to figure out, no, you just cannot be kissing the dead of somebody who has Ebola. You just can't. So figuring out, being able to talk to them. And I won't tell the family. I would talk to the village chief. You've got to talk to the village chief. You've got to get the village chief and the, or the, the, the senior mothers or the, the, the wise women of the village, whoever has the power to make these decisions, to understand and to believe. Working individually with somebody isn't always the best idea. Working with the level of authority in the village is the best idea. There's one other practice that's going on in the world that people are trying to repattern out. Pardon? Yes, female genital mutilation is one that they're trying to repattern out, restructure out, remove. So when you're in caught in a cultural situation, can we keep it? Can we keep it and just do it maybe a little bit differently? Can we change it, but keep it sa- and keep it safe, but enough for them? Or do we have to just say because? And there's only these three that I can think of right now. I mean, I've just added the Ebola. I've always used the illustrations of the foot binding or the female genital mutilation. There's really not been many other cultural things that people have just said. Really, I mean, I'm certain in some of the cultures. Um, but those are the key ones. So as you're looking at culture, think about can we just keep it, although I don't really, you know, for me, I'm not going to do it. But if that's what culturally, and it's not going to damage, cause disease to spread, be unsafe for the rest of the hospital. So those are some ways to think about how to provide culturally competent care, which is what um, Madeline Leininger talks about. So she, her whole theory, and I like those three, so I've kind of, I always integrate that, that one in there. There's one more theory I'm going to mention, and then I'm going to, I have uh, just a few moments for questions, and it's the Campina Bacote, um, cult, um, the biblical model of cultural care. I don't know, Campina Bacote is the last name, Campina dash Bacote, B-A-C-O-T-E. Um, and um, she has a biblical model of cultural competency, so that has some information as well. So I'd recommend um, finding that book. Um, and I think she's from the Cincinnati area down in here. Um, so I believe our time is coming to an end, but I do want to answer a couple questions. Yes. Okay, for, right. For the repatterning or restructuring, is there any research or is there anything out there that so that you can do it, figure out how to do it gradually? I don't know of research that's been done. I don't know of a model that's been done. I think it will take years, but I think if you're working within the Christian community, if you can demonstrate within the Christian community 
the danger of the foot binding, the danger of the kissing the person dead with Ebola, or the female genital mutilation, if you can kind of demonstrate it and begin to help them move along, um, I don't think you can just, we tried making a law, it still happens in the United States. How do I know that? I saw it on um, CSI one day. You know, it's, there, it's being talked about. Female, female genital mutilation is an illustration. Sometimes they use those cases on some of the television programs. So it does happen in the U.S. Yes, you had a question? Uh, for a comment on that, sometimes it's, it's a kind of variation of Russian roulette, but I wonder sometimes letting that change happen from within rather than actively driving it. Uh, case in point being um, uh, the father of modern missions, William Carey. Uh-huh. Uh, two practices he saw in India were uh, widow burning uh-huh. and infant killing. When uh-huh. they had twins, they would kill the second one because yep. they were evil spirits. Um, and by translating the Sanskrit scriptures into the local language, uh-huh. letting them read it and say, wow, this isn't part of our religion uh-huh. after all. It's an old uh-huh. folk tale. Maybe we shouldn't do this any, uh-huh. anymore. Uh-huh. I think I wonder if sometimes the long-term solution would be more long-term rather than just laying it down, this is the way it's going to be because I'm in mm-hmm. charge and you're not. And I would, ag- I would agree with that. Now, you know, the foot binding, no one's actually dying from it and the female genital mutilation, you know, there's a lot of problems with it. I think with the Ebola kiss, you know, kissing the dead after Ebola, that may be one time you would say, you can't. You just can't. Now, if you do and you get sick, I mean, I've tried. So there, I think it also is kind of, is it something one can wait long term and it will eventually fade away? Or is it going to, that Ebola thing is going to maybe kill too many people. And so I think there you have to really get the village chief or the village elder or the mother elder or whatever person's in charge, female or male, and really try to get them to understand. And there. There are, there are problems. I mean, I had um, actually somebody I know in um, Guinea, a whole team of six people were killed trying to do education in Guinea. And the, the one man that was killed, I, ha- I had his son in one of my classes when I was teaching in Gabon. And, I mean, it really touched me deeply to think that they were out teaching and they were killed doing it. And it just, I mean, I just can't get my head wrapped around it. I am, it's over at 2.45. 2.45 no, we start the next one at 2.30. Okay, to 2.30. So I have plenty of time for questions. Okay. So I wonder part of it, too, I mean, some of these are the value of women. And so, you know, biblically speaking, how God values people. You were mentoring people uh-huh. and um, speaking to them about the Lord and, and um, culturally or spiritually that way that they're coming to a better understanding okay. of the value of women. Okay, the value of women and coming to them, um, repeating this because it's being recorded, okay. Um, the value of teaching about the value of women. Um, that is time to do, but if they... I, I can't read your sign, I'm sorry. Okay. Oh, ten minutes. So <laughs> big up this side. <laughs> read it, sorry. Um, what I have found, um, I was talking with some people when, when I was working and understood the languages in, in, um, in the Democratic Republic of Congo and, and the value of men, you know, even helping, you know, women are often overworked, you know, helping with water and wood and everything. And so when this one pastor who really, young pastor, who really believed in helping his wife, especially as she was pregnant and all, the, the biggest 
naysayers in the group were the women of the village hassling the woman saying, you can't do your work by yourself. You have to have your husband help you. And it was like, are you kidding me? I would have thought the men was going, the men would get after the men while you're doing women's work. He didn't hear that. He only, his wife heard the social pressure going on of, you can't do your work. You're, you're not a good woman. You're not a good wife because you can't do your work. You're letting your husband help. And it's like, are you kidding? So sometimes when we think, you know, so it's not always the man suppressing the women. And in fact, when I did some studies and some um, reading about the female um, genital mutilation, frequently that's transmitted from generation to generation. It's transmitted by the woman, by the women's, the women's group. And it's not necessarily transmitted by the men, and it's something to keep women down. So we have to be aware that I think the gospel message and teaching Christ's love and the value of each human being is the critical way to go. I I really do. Um, Because in our mind, we say, well, it's probably this, and it might not be. So until we fully understand, but the gospel is always true. God created us. He loves us. He wants, he, we are, he's created us equal in his sight, valued in his sight. And speaking that language and helping them to understand that language would be very helpful. Yes? I think one has to do education at the top level. Uh, unfortunately, there's a lot of culture. I mean, if, if I came alongside and I convinced you to do something because it's the right thing to do and they did that, they could be ostracized from their whole family, their whole village, everything. And now you have somebody who is just all by themselves. So we really do have to speak to the upper. We really have to work, and that, that's kind of different. Like if I think it's a good idea and I'm going to do it, I mean, that's different than the, my Euro-American I think, I'm just going to tell them on the side. I'm going to convince them on the side that it's okay not to do this. Unless you have a very good relationship and you can understand all the language that's going on around you, it's a very dangerous thing to do. And not dangerous like dangerous for your body, but it's dangerous for the people that might be there. And um, unless you really understand the language, there's a lot of dialogue that goes on very quickly even when I understood the language very quickly, that it's like, oh, what are they saying there? And why are they saying that? And what's the real meaning of that? And so trying to convince somebody that culturally that they have to change to protect them, um, I'm a believer. And maybe it's not the village chief. Maybe it's the midwives or the traditional birth attendants. Or maybe it's uh, an elder woman that has the most power. Now, there's a village chief, but the elder woman really does have more. And that's what living in the culture helps you to do is to be able to understand who actually has the decision-making and the kind of the power and who do you have to negotiate with. Okay? Well, thank you very much, and I'll, I'll stay up here for a few minutes and then move on to the next session. But thank you very much for coming.